0: Okay, so uh, tonight we're continuing our various teachings that are based on how to make disciples. Um, We're following, we're talking about uh, a continuum that we call EPDC, Evangelism, Pastoral Care, Discipleship, Continuum, and uh, how to fulfill the Great Commission to go into all the world, make disciples. Uh, Of course, discipleship starts with conversion, conversion. And conversion starts with the effectual calling of the gospel. And so through the gospel, God brings people out of death into life. John 5, Jesus said, A time is coming, and now is when the dead will hear my voice, and those who hear will live. According to the gospel, Isaiah 59.2 says that uh, your sins have made a separation between you and your God so that he cannot hear. According to the gospel, everyone is born spiritually deaf, spiritually dead, and spiritually blind. Now, the reason they're spiritually blind and spiritually deaf is because they're spiritually dead. (laughs) And dead people can't see very well, nor can they hear very well. And so uh, when Paul is talking to the Ephesian church who who has come to Christ and he reviews some of the great things of the gospel in chapter 1, he continues on into chapter 2, and he says, you he made alive... Uh, who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. Now, interestingly, the New King James and the King James throws in an italics in verse one, made alive, because it's a thought that he builds up to. But in in, in the in the uh, ESV and the New American Standard, it, it just says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the three enemies of our faith, the prince of the power of the air. Uh, the course of this world, and the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. And then he goes on to say, he made you alive in Christ. So uh King James translates that quicken, but your spirit is taken out of, when you hear Jesus, John 5, those who hear will live. When you hear, uh when you're drawn to God, when you're convicted of your sin, the Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16, uh, when you're granted repentance, Romans 2.4, the kindness of God grants us repentance. Acts 11.18, they, after they hear what, what Peter summarizes what God did in Acts 10, uh, he when he gets back from Cornelius' house, the Jewish believers take exception with him. And so in Acts 11, he recounts everything that happens in Acts 10. You just get Acts 10 over again in Acts 11, and uh, you get Peter's summary of it. And so, um, and then at the end of it, though, it says they quieted down, which is amazing when you can get religious, know-it-all people who are like to cause division and speak evil of one another and, and stir up all kinds of demonic and division and religion and stuff. And, you know, that's how you know people are not really, that they're more religious than in reality is because they like to, uh, you know, they have a lot of opinions, but, so forth. And so it says they shut up. <laughs> That's when you know God's moving. When religious people shut their mouths and they said, so God has granted the Gentiles that leads to life. Because what they basically are saying is, wow, God did this that we really opposed, that we really didn't want, that that really goes against our religious self-righteousness and, and so forth. And he's moving with these people And okay, so we now recognize it was God. (laughs) Like God was like, oh wow, I feel better now that you've, (laughs) you know. And so it says they they, uh, you know they 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 close their mouths and they said God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. So that's what we're about in proclaiming the kingdom of God is God. It we're about being planting. I planted Apollos water. God causes the growth. God causes the conviction of sin. No one can come lest the Father draws him. God causes people to hear the, the words of the gospel. As Paul said to the Thessalonians, I thank God that you heard it for what it really is, the word of God and not of men. It's only God that can do that. We, can, we speak the word of God, but the Holy Spirit has to make them alive. Okay, so that's... Uh, Kind of some things we're dealing with in this whole series about making disciples, which starts with conversion. Uh, after conversion follows concepts, of, two concepts of sanctification and maturation. To be progressively sanctified by the scripture, um, John 17, 7, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Um. Hebrews 10, 29 talks about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and uh, the Spirit, or Hebrews ten twenty nine, the Spirit of grace. Other verses talk about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. But sanctification simply means to be set apart to God. As we confess our sins, after as we walk in the power of his resurrection instead of our own righteousness, as we do not pursue righteousness anymore as if it's by performance, but as we receive grace and, and as it's no longer as we've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. And as we learn to walk in the power of his resurrection, we're sanctified, set apart to the to the character of Christ, to the spirit of Christ, to the purpose of God. And as we grow in being centered in on, on his becoming his children and his will and his purposes, that's called sanctification. Uh, and as we progress in that, it also has the twin concept of maturation. Hey, Anvesh, would you get me another bottle of water? Um, so, um, So in maturation and sanctification, we're primarily concerned with what pastoral care is, what being a shepherd is, is being a shepherd underneath the chief shepherd, Jesus, to lead them into relationship progressively with the chief shepherd, Jesus, In such a way that they truly become his sheep and his sheep know his voice. You want to help them grow in the knowledge of God's voice by both growing in the sensitivity to the spirit through spiritual disciplines and growing in knowledge of God's word because God never speaks in contrary to his word. And you want them, you want to lead them, Jesus said, to teach them all things whatsoever I commanded. You want to, in pastoral care, we teach them to follow the ways of God in every way, shape, form of their life. They follow God's word about courting, dating, marriage, about raising children, about vocation, about how they handle their finances, about uh, attitudes, motivations about how they deal with relationship conflicts, about not being gossips. That's the acceptable Christian sin today. Probably the most rampant sin in the body of Christ today is gossip. And, uh, uh, you know, people, most Christians are very good gossipers because that's part of self-righteousness and uh, and do a lot of destruction to the purpose of God in the church by by speaking against other churches and continuing to divide, divide, divide. And uh, in pastoral care, we teach them not to do that, not to live that way, not to listen to gossip, not to be uh, not to speak gossip, uh, not not to you know to lust, not to covet, not to we we teach them to make the Lord Lord of every area of their life because in a way, Pastoral care is soul care. You will be most healthy emotionally, financially, spiritually, and so forth when you center in God's will because you are created by him for him. And as you're restored to the image of God, you become more healthy. And, of course, discipleship is specific training in various ministries. Uh, Our three ministries as Christians are our ministry to God, which we do through worship, prayer, giving, so forth, uh, adoration, study of His Word, our ministry to the body of Christ, which we do by discipling each other and edifying each other and sanctifying each other, and in counseling, learning. You know, there's three major schools of Christian thought on counseling. We would encourage you to know them all. Uh, there's, you know, the, uh, there's inner healing. There's casting out demons. There's modeling in the pattern. We we would encourage everyone to know them all. The the time for superstars is gone. What apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers are supposed to do is equip the average saint to do these things. That's the, that's the biblical model. That's the biblical pattern. Um. And had my Bible open to a, uh, a verse how, where David quotes out of Exodus, and he talks, he's telling Solomon how God had given him the pattern for the tabernacle, and he's quoting what Moses quoted in Exodus 25, 8, 9, and 40. We're, we need to get back to biblical patterns. So um, all this is just by way of an introduction to kind of re- refresh us in what we're trying to do here. And, uh, but discipleship is training in worship leading, in evangelism, and how to shepherd, and how to minister deliverance, how to lead people into the baptism of the Spirit, how to cast out demons, how to disciple, how to counsel, and above all, how to model it, how, how to, you know, like my father always said, uh, the hardest place to live the Christian faith is in your own home among your own family, and that's exactly where the Lord has called us to do it. Uh, you're, you're, if you, you, sh- as a disciple and as a shepherd of God's people, you should say, you want to see what marriage is like, come over to our house. You want to see how to raise your kids, come over to our house. You want to see how, how a Christian should work, come work with us. <laughs> you want to see how a Christian should treat his fellow Christians, come and visit, come hang out at one of our single brother's households and, uh, receive a lesson in mature relationships. Uh, and if we can get, we, we, one of the things we've got to see is this whole idea of covenant community where a group of people covenant to have single brothers, households, single sisters, households, married households, but where we live together for the glory of God in complete obedience to every area of his word. This is not optional. This is just biblical Christianity. And this is what we have to restore Uh, for the sake of the lost if you really kind of study i read another article today about teenage sexuality and sexting and and oh my god it was just it's just you know and everyone's like it's so sick and so forth what would you expect of a godless culture and there's no way uh making church optional and making how far you want to go with christ and whether you want to make him really lord or none of that it's that time for all that's done get into the kingdom or get out you know we we've had a nation of fence sitters and and compromised and complacent and worldly and half-hearted and half-assed christianity and we it's too late for that we really have to present something to the world where we say hey be an imitator of us as we are of Christ. You want to know how to live? Come dwell among us. I'm reminded of my good friend Eric Meyer's testimony, who's pastor of Tampa Covenant Church, and one of my advisors. Um, he was a, a fraternity guy who uh, used to hassle my wife before he came to Christ in his freshman year, and she was teaching at the university, and uh, by his sophomore year, he came to Christ. But how he came to Christ is interesting. A guy in our fellowship was witnessing to him. And um, he was somewhat intrigued and interested. And they built a friendship. And I don't know. I can't remember if they were playing racquetball somewhat regularly or whatever. But the guy in the fellowship was reaching out to him. I'd never met him or even didn't even know this was going on. But... Uh, um the, that particular brother invited him over to a single brother's household for dinner. And during dinner, the single brothers had a conflict arise among them. And they resolved it in a very uh, mature, biblical, redemptive way, building bridges instead of walls by in, in, in walking in the spirit instead of the flesh. And he was so impressed at the difference between that and what went on in his fraternity house that he became a Christian. And he said that that night, seeing the brothers handle that conflict around their dinner table in comparison to the total anger, chaos, uh, backbiting, putting each other down that was going on in his fraternity, which means brotherhood, house, He's he saw they have something real. And they have what people are joining fraternities to try to find and not finding because you can't find brotherhood outside of Christ. So believe me, single brothers' households, single sisters' households, I pray to God that we'll have a um a cluster of them at Wright State University someday. Uh, so tonight I want to talk about a subject that Uh, is called epistemology. Now, um, one of the reasons I do this uh, on Tuesday and Thursday nights and for people that are more oriented toward our outreach ministries, especially at the campus uh, and the ones we're preparing to start at high school campuses, is because, of course, at the university campus, hopefully, you have people who can read a little better, maybe? And uh, <laughs> the standards have gone down, of course. But uh, hopefully, uh, you know, you know, at uh, frankly, what we on Sunday mornings we have a church that's very diverse. We have an inner city church that has college graduates and people with master's degrees, and we have people that didn't graduate high school and people that are challenged in their reading. That's why we have foundational books that are more simple and e- intermediate books that are more insightful but that may be a little difficult for some people. And so what I try to do with you guys is is teach some of the things that might be a little bit more difficult. Not every Christian is going to want to learn about epistemology, but you need to because it's all all through the Bible. Hebrews 11.1 is an epistemological statement. By faith we understand. Okay, now, now faith, that's uh, Hebrews I jumped at nothing in Hebrews 11:3. Hebrews 11, one is now faith is the substance of things hoped for, it's the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not some leap of faith, nor is it as Tim Keller likes to call it in the reason for God a leap of doubt. All kinds of lost people are making assumptions that if assume facts not in evidence, that are leaps of doubt. But we are not making leaps of faith. As Paul said, I know him whom I have believed. He didn't say, I hope I'm right about him whom I have believed. I know him whom I have believed. And epistemology is simply the the subject of how do we know. As a Christian, we are saying that Jesus is right in, this, in a very narrow-minded, exclusive statement, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Now, if that's not narrow-minded and exclusive, I don't know what is. So, in epistemology, we deal with uh, how do we know that we're right. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if we've only hoped in Christ in this life, we're of all men most to be pitied. Now, I was once, uh, uh, when I was two or three months old in the Christ, I was talking to an older Christian, in quotes, and I said some things about how we know, and he actually said, well, you know, if we're wrong, we're still living a better life in this world. And I was like, what? (laughs) No. Eh, 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 eh." uh, Forget. I I just want to forget you said that. But uh, uh, if we're not right, we're fools. We're of all men most to be pitied. We might as well eat, drink and be merry. Let's shut it down right now and get go to Chipotle before it closes. <laughs> and uh, let's get drunk and, and and be gluttons and get high because tomorrow we might diet. But uh you know, there's no purpose if 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 he's not correct. Why would we study you so hard and Pray and do all these meetings and quit and and not live the way we want to live, but the way he he tells us to live, unless we know. So what we're dealing with tonight is is, is just an introduction to a subject called epistemology, which uh, epistemos is is a Greek word for knowledge, and ologies, uh, you know, biology, you know, all the ologies are the study of. Epistemology is the study of how do we know? Because, for instance, an agnostic is a person, A means against, nastas is another word for knowledge, and an agnostic is a person who is saying, I know only one thing. I dogmatically know for certain that there's so many facts in the universe that you could never know anything that you know for sure, but how do they know that? <laughs> it's obviously it's a logical contradiction to be an agnostic, and you can lovingly help them see that. So let's get started. The first thing you want to know about epistemology is called the law of non-contradiction. Everybody should, any Christian should know this and memorize this. By the way, uh, 1 Peter 3.15 is kind of the, the basis. Epistemology deals with a branch of apologetics called presuppositional apologetics. If you want to read a good book about apologetics, there's one of those, uh, that series of Bates, I forget what they're called, uh, but there's books, that, that, and, and there's one that's called Five Views of Apologetics. And in each of these books, like there's four, three or four views, three views of the millennium, they have a champion of each position present their position, and then the other positions uh, present a rebuttal, and uh, so forth. So, uh, there's one called Five Views of Apologetics, and and you know what? When you deal with like your Josh McDowells and your uh, Lee Strobel's and those kind of people you're dealing with what's called evidential apologetics evidences for the faith and that's a type of how we know or that that is actually based on what we're going to look at later tonight is historical or legal proof but presuppositional projects gets down is about epistemology how do we know anything for sure so uh, the first thing in a and uh, the reason we have to know this is because the Bible commands us to. First Peter three fifteen says, "But sanctify that is set apart." We already talked a lot about what sanctification means. Christ is Lord in your heart, always, always, at every moment. Not when you're twenty years old in the Lord, but starting today, always being ready to make a defense for the hope that's in you. Now, the word defense there is the Greek word apologeto, which we get apology from or, or an explanation. Always be ready to say, this is why I know that I know that I know, that I'm not just hoping. This is why I'm certain of the things I'm saying to you. Always be ready to make a defense to uh, for the hope that's within you yet with gentleness and respect for others one of the things i love about tim keller is his attitude of respecting and hearing out and presenting in a fair way the the oppositions to christianity in his book the reason for god he lists the the eight greatest objections among Millennials today to Christianity, and he answers them respectfully. And he shows how they're actually making a leap of doubt in each case, and how that in each case they're assuming facts not in evidence, and they're making an, an epistemological fallacy. That is, fallacy is in, uh, you know, in logic when you're making a bad argument. They're making a, an epistemological fallacy. They're assuming facts not in evidence and building their whole ideas of truth on things that they're, that they're, that that uh, that they're only assuming to be true, and there's no evidence that they're true. And if you can lovingly help people see that the ideas they have are just not so, hopefully you can be used of God to, to open their eyes. So that's the basis of of why we do epistemology is because. God tells us to set apart Christ as Lord in our heart and always be ready, able, capable to make a defense. Now, the first thing in epistemology is this, the law of non-contradiction. It's the basis of all Hebrew and Roman and Greek thought. As we get into epist- uh, as we, if you remember when we studied worldviews, we studied polytheism, pantheism, theism, and materialism. And we basically postulated that the two most dominant worldviews in modern times in, in the West and those countries like China that have become Western in philosophy is uh, our materialism or in communism, a type of materialism called dialectical materialism uh, and uh, theism. For the most part pantheism and and polytheism are shrinking faiths in the world. Less and less people are polytheists, less and less people are pantheist and most even most polytheist uh are or and pantheists have become more and more nominal polytheists or pantheists, for instance, Anvesh knows and I know uh some people. He knows lots more people than I do that are Hindus from, from uh, India. Uh, and most of the Hindus that we know are nominal Hindus. They have some Hindu customs, but they don't really know much about their Hindu faith. Much like most Americans probably know think they know a few things about Christianity, but very few Christians even know very much about Christianity in America today. So, more you know, the vast, vast people, majority of people that have had some exposure to Christianity have a superficial exposure to Christianity. So, uh, the two predominant worldviews are naturalism or materialism, which leads to the view uh, the religion of humanism and and its statist uh, salvations and its government planned government planned economies and so forth views of of man's salvation and theism, which leads to uh to God centered views of salvation. So those two worldviews both actually agree on a a concept called the law of non contradiction. And the law of non-contradiction, we'll give it to you as an equation first, then we'll explain it. The law of non-contradiction is that A cannot be equal to not A. Now, we have a couple of engineering students here, one bachelor's and one master's candidate. And th- so they know a little bit about mathematics. And this, we're just talking algebra one here. But, you know, in algebra one, A cannot be not A, right? Three cannot be five. Red cannot be green. And truth cannot be false. So if I say uh, the candles on the walls are red, we cannot accept the, the modern view of relativism that says, if Anvesh says they're blue and Bob Timer says they're green and Steven says they're purple um, and I say they're red, well, just hang on to your opinion as long as it's working for you. They have an objective reality outside themselves. Outside of us, I should say, not outside themselves, but Misspoke there. Um, now, frankly, they have a subjective truth because all things, in a, in a theistic worldview, all things are actually what God declares them to be. <laughs> but they cannot be this way and that. Jesus can't say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and then turn around and say, I'm a way, and a truth, and a life, among many ways and many truths and many lives. He can't do that. Even, even Jesus can't contradict himself. Nor does he. So that is huge because, you know, in, for instance, in agnosticism, there's a built in contradiction. I know I have enough knowledge of God, the universe, all truth, and all reality that I know for sure that you can't know anything because there's always might be more facts that come in and negate the knowledge you already have. As Christians, we're saying we know, and we know things absolutely. Now, we're not privately saying we know them because we deserve to know them or because we're actually very smart, (laughs) as we'll see. We're saying we know them despite ourselves. Because he is true. Bible says whoever has believed his report has set his seal to this, that God is true. And the reason we know God to be true is because the Bible reveals that God is able to reveal himself in such a way that we know that we know that we know that what he's revealing to us is true. And Jesus said that if anyone is willing to do my will he'll know the teaching that it's from God. The reason people don't know truth is they're not willing to know truth. God is declaring truth to all men. And if, if they were be willing to be convicted of their sins and turn away from self-lordship and from being their own gods and exalting their own point of view and hear the truth, uh, they can know it's true. But this is precisely what men do not want to do since the fall of man. All fallen men, there's none who seeks for God, no, not one. Together they turn aside. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. All fallen men are rebelling in, against the truth because deep inside they know that they will no longer be their own God and they can't just do whatever they do want to do. And they have the illusion or the deception of thinking they're free. Because the, the ultimate value of fallen men, which is the ultimate value in our post-Christian, post-modern age, is people want, think they're free, even though they're not free. And they think that if they want to do what they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want to do it with whomever they want to do it. And they want no limitations on that not realizing that the limitation on that is that their own sin nature is is taking them down a a narrowing path of addiction, bondage, uh, selfishness, and, and that their will is being captured to want to do that which is destructive and that which the Bible calls dissipation, that is wasting. Someone in their right mind would not want to be an alcoholic, and every alcoholic wants to drink how much they want to drink, whenever they want to drink, so forth. But the truth is that drink is capturing them, and they're not free. It's killing them. When they, when they uh, drink that next swig of vodka, they're French kissing with the devil, and they're slaves to an increasing habit. Whether it's sexual addiction, fear of man addiction, uh you know, seeking, seeking to be famous, uh, wealthy, whatever, whatever they think they want, is not actually what. If they really do want, they just think they want that, and they're being captured by various enslavements, which actually bring forth the wages of sin is death. But they, Romans six twenty three, they it bring for it brings forth destructiveness. And it causes them to fall further and further away from that which is in harmony with who they were created to be. And therefore, part of the consequence is they are increasingly miserable, even though they may not know it. They may be able to get high enough, regularly enough, to have the illusion of peace or happiness, but they peace, peace, there is no peace. There's no peace for the, to, for those who are outside of Christ. There's no peace for the wicked. And wickedness is not like moral, like, oh, bad, bad, bad. Wickedness is just not knowing the God who created you and not living for him. So this is the kind of appeal we want to make to those, because we live in a culture where everybody worships the deception an illusion that they have of their freedom. When in fact, the, as Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And the ultimate sin is the first commandment, that having other gods beside him. And self has become the God of modern men. And that is, an, is, is the ultimate form of slavery. Slavery. As Bob Dylan once said during his Christian phase, "You're gonna have to serve somebody," <laughs> and uh, that's what Paul is saying in Romans six. All of Paul, you know, Bob Dylan just wrote a song about Romans six. Uh, you know, you're gonna have to serve somebody, and whether they know it or not, they are slaves. And being a slave to what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, with whomever I want to do it, is the ultimate form of slavery and bondage and destructiveness and worthless live the, and gives you no reason to live. It's the ultimate waste of life. So, again, the law of non-contradiction, A cannot be not A, I can't say this is true and false at the same time. I can't say black is white and white is black and it's whatever it is to you. The truth is either true for everyone or no one. It's not true for you. And you will get all kinds of worldly people will want to, in their deception and lostness, will want to dismiss you and say, well, I'm glad that's working for you. And in all due respect, in all love and sincerity to them, it's not working for them. They may have the deception or the blind illusion that it's working, but it's not. And we pray that God would grant them repentance to open their eyes from the blindness that that is destroying them. And it's that simple of issues. It's not about getting another notch on the belt or some, all the shallow things that developed in evangelical Christianity in the 20th century. It's about heaven and hell. It's about becoming in harmony with the creator who created you or ever ever after becoming in disharmony and, and slavery and, and misery and, and waste of, of existence to the point where Jesus even said it would be better for them not to have been born. That's the issue when you're sharing the gospel. It would be better for them never to have been born than to not come to know the God who created them through Christ. So let's look at four ways that uh, the, especially the two religions of materialism and Judeo-Christian the, uh, theocentric thinking look at how do we know and how they both use these things. The first one is called reason. Now, with reason, there's actually a branch of thinking that used to be required. The university system developed in the 13th century and, uh, from that time until 1950s, all Western universities in Europe, in America, in New Zealand, in Australia, in Canada, and anywhere else, in, in any place that was colonized by Spain or the Netherlands or whatever, they everyone had to take courses in a, in a discipline called logic and logical thinking. Now, sadly, it, in my classes at Sinclair, I rarely have a student, a supposedly college student, that even knows that there is such an a, a, a academic discipline. Sadly, I actually usually have to explain what an academic discipline is. They don't even know what that means. And, uh, so, and they're supposed to be in college, but that's the great success of our public welfare education system. But, Uh, An academic discipline is just a branch of study, of course, and one particularly important branch of study in all Western thinking of either of the religions of humanism or Christianity is called logic and logical thinking. Now, in each of these um, uh, approaches to knowledge or epistemologies, I'm going to give you a little bit of, just a teeny bit of history as to who might be famous for them. And I'm going to give you the fact that they have some advantages and some limitations, especially from a Christian perspective. So, of course, we most associate reason with the philosopher Plato. Uh, It, of course, goes back before him, Protagoras of Abdera, who I quoted on Sunday, I think, Uh, A philosopher, a pre-Socratic that is before Socrates, and then, of course, Plato was Socrates' disciple, a pre-Socratic philosopher named Protagoras of Abdera said, man is the measure of all things. But what she's saying is man's reason is reality. Now, if you read uh, Plato's Republic, which is very statist and totalitarian, uh, there's a section called the blind cave analogy, and I love that part. In the in the blind cave, he postulates that all men are like living in a cave where they're tied up and their eyes are facing a wall and there's a there's a fire and shadows behind them and all they see in life is the shadows. So they know something about the reality of the substance but they don't know anything until they begin to reason. And then reason will lead them to the realities thereof and set them free. Okay, so it's a faith in reason, you might say. A faith that logic and logical thinking um, is true. Now, within logic and logical thinking, there are good reasoning and there's what's called fallacies. A fallacy is a is a wrongly constructed logical argument. And if you wanted to study, if you want a brief introduction to this, let me encourage you to to write this down and read this. There was a, a, an author who used to, you know, they actually used to have content in university papers. You know how every university has like a daily paper. Like they think it's the Guardian at Wright State and, and the Clarion at Sinclair and and these things actually used to have intelligent articles and that were written by syndicated writers and things. And um, they and so there was in the fifties, there's a, there was an article called Love is a Fallacy, and it's a great introduction to the importance of logic and so forth, and it's written by a guy named Max SCHU. I can't remember if it's Schumacher or something like that. I think Max Schumacher or something like that. Uh, love is a fallacy. You know, it'll take you about ten minutes to read it, but it's well worth it. Especially because uh, if I say too much about it, I'll ruin it. Because at the end, it's hilarious, and it and it will open your eyes to like how powerful uh, the the an important logic and fallacies are. Now, here's here's the problem. Here's the limitations of logic. Both the humanists and the Christians. Recognize that logic is limited by, by correct logic or by fal- fallacies. Something the Christians do a lot more with, but but humanists uh, acknowledge this is that logic is wrong. Though also, even if the logical argument is correct, the logic is wrong if the assumptions are faulty. Now, in all logic, you have assumptions. And so you need to be introduced to a couple words. One is axiom, the other is postulate. And an axiom or a postulate are, are, um, are assumptions about the nature of reality that are held by a culture and assumed to be true with no proof that aren't necessarily true, but they're so prevailing in the zeitgeist, a German word for the spirit of the times, or milieu, a Latin word for the culture of the time. Uh, They're so predominant in the worldview of the times that they're assumed to be true uh, a priori, that is without evidence, they're just taken. And everybody grows up in cultures that have fundamental myths as the assumptions to their logic. And so the problem is, is if those assumptions are incorrect, the entire logical world that they've built on top of them are incorrect. If, for instance, uh, Karl Marx's assumptions about human nature and society and economics had been true, his system would have been pretty logical, and it might not have given birth to such a reign of terror and so forth. The problem was it was based on all kind of wrong assumptions about the nature of man and the nature of economics and so forth. Now, these postulates and axioms are unprovable. So, for instance, to a materialist, one of the postulates is that material is eternal and that life came spontaneously generated from non-life. That's basic to all materialist thinking. You must be an evolutionist if you're a materialist. So there is no personal, intelligent God that's transcendent, outside, and above nature who who created the material world ex nihilo, as in the Christian thinking, out of nothing. But the material always existed. And then maybe it exploded for some unknown reason at a big bang or something. The problem is, is the first and second law law of dynamics assume that matter cannot be created or destroyed, and all matter is always breaking down into less harmful forms, and there must be eternalness. So if material is eternal, then it would have ceased to exist. It would have broken down into unharmable forms of energy. And there is no upward principle of matter more grouping itself. In fact, the, the, base, the first laws of science are the opposite. So you've got a big hill to climb up if you're an evolutionist. You've got to assume that there really is some way that matter was preserved. Then you've got to assume that there's some way that matter is, is, being, is getting more complex and that life spontaneously generated out of non-life. And that there's some upward way there's some way that, that evolution is directing itself upward but we all know that all mutations are negative. we all know that there's that there's selection within species but never enough to count for, for one species becoming an actual another species and so forth Now, however, from a Christian point of view, the biggest limitation on logic and logical thinking is this. The Bible postulates that, that after the sin of Adam and Eve, all men were, had a heart uh, that was blinded by sin, and therefore the assumptions and axioms and postulates they bring to reality are wrong. And they are, in fact, wanting to believe wrong assumptions and wanting so that there's because there's none who seeks for God. They suppress the truth of God and they want to worship the creation that is material rather than the transcendent creator because they don't want there to be an eternal, spiritual, personable, transcendent creator. Because that would mean they can't have sex with whoever they want all the time, everywhere and in every way. And they can't drink everywhere in every way. And they can't smoke weed in everywhere in every way. Or they can't be in business to rob, steal, and, you know, to try to get power at Wall Street and have more toys than everyone else has toys. That they have to re- have restraints of accountability that they don't want. Believe me, the reason evolution is so popular is not the science behind it. It's the implications behind it, that fallen men want to believe, so much so that the vast majority of people are actually so blind as to think that anyone who doesn't believe evolution is denying science. And this we came to set them free from, because God in his mercy set us free. I was an evolutionist all my life. After I became a Christian, I read, was reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I said... Lord, do you want me to believe like there was no Neolithic age and that, that you, there actually, it was created in seven days just like this and there was an actual Adam and Eve and that all human beings are descended biologically from one couple and, and that there was introduced this thing called sin in the Garden of Eden and that this is the reality of whatever. And, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me very clearly and said, yes. <laughs> and my eyes were opened. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 that by faith we understand that the worlds were created in six days by the word of God out of nothing. Now, I've been a six-day creationist ever since that day. Now, I've now read lots and lots of books on it, and I can debate it and argue it and so forth. But you're not going to lead, and you're, you should, and, and and I would encourage you to do it respectfully. and uh, But emphatically... Because their very eternal being depends on their being willing to acknowledge the truth. If anyone's willing to do my will, they'll know the teaching that is from God, Jesus said. Their unwillingness to believe evolution has nothing to do with the science. Because the science has a lot to overcome to actually have any feasibility. And in fact, one of the leading genres, if you go on, if you Google evolution versus creation, you'll find that there's probably no subject you can find that has more books. There's tens of thousands of books. But one, and there's all kinds of subsets. There's pro-creation books, pro-evolution. There's different uh, aspects of creationism, like the arguments for for a young earth aspect, which I'd encourage you to get familiar with that, so forth. But one of the leading Kinds of evolutionary books are evolutionists rebuking other evolutionists and saying, "This is darn it! This evolution is is true. It must be true. It has to be true." And nobody's giving any good explanations for why it's true. And we got to do a better job because you know natural selection and all these things have been shot. You know the mutation theory. It's all been it's all crap. We know it. And it must be true because there clearly can't be a God. And he clearly can't have created us. And we clearly evolved. And it clearly took billions and billions and billions of years and all this. And, and we've got to come up with some better explanations for this. Now, that doesn't filter down to the high school level or even the college level, but that's the, a major big thing in evolutionary thinking among people who, think they're smart because they have some kind of alphabet soup crap over it Past after their name like more shit and bullshit and piled higher and dipper shit so they they know there's no that you know there's no good explanation for spontaneous generation There's no explanation for matter being eternal. There's no explanation. Nothing from nothing is nothing. There's actually a rock song that says that. (laughs) Nothing from nothing is nothing. I mean, you got to have something. (laughs) It says if you want to be with me or something like this. you know, like, how could nothing create nothing? But humanistic evolution materialist assumes that there was nothing that created nothing. Believe me, there's a hill of things to overcome. Men's blindness is in the nature of who they are. It's the outworking of their sin. It's their presuppositions. That's why it's called epistemological presuppositional apologetics. Because they want to, you know, the uh, today's materialistic world, when uh, the new iPhone watch came out, people you know, pitched tents and outside the stores and, and stayed up for two or three days to try to get the first ones. And people do this for rock concerts now, and uh, of course, uh, soccer games, if you live in countries that like soccer more than we, we do over here, but today over here, maybe the Super Bowl or something or whatever, rock concerts maybe, uh, and so forth. right? Guess what? When the Origin of the Species was was released by Darwin, uh, people lined up for days and, and actually camped out in tents and it sold out in three hours. Because people want they're not a neutral or object, objective. They want an explanation that there is no God. And they're willing to believe any crazy nonsense whatsoever, no matter how absurd, and call it scientific and bet their whole lives on it because they are not neutral. One of the most terrible things about the current state of Christianity is there's no depth of a doctrine of sin. We think that people are basically good in the church today and that I'm a good person because I go to church and so forth, and we don't understand the depth. Human beings are sinful. They're created in the image of God so they have value, and they're created for a purpose, and they'll never know freedom until they're serving that creator and that purpose. And we're here on a rescue mission, but they have a strong force that doesn't want to be rescued. Believe me, I can remember this Christian guy moved into my hometown, my senior year, and I was, you know, you know, getting high every day and selling drugs in the school and having a lot of fun and popularity, and it was all great. And the one life was just one party. After another party, after another party, after another party. And this guy started saying stuff about Jesus to me. My parents became Christians, and I said, oh, my God, the parents are Jesus freaks. They're talking about Jesus and God and all this shit. It's terrible. <laughs> you know, I don't want anything to do with it. And this guy started talking to me, and, and the Holy Spirit started moving on my heart. And I, and I said, I am never going to sit near that guy again. I made it a point to avoid him the rest of the year. I didn't like him very much. (laughs) Because we're not neutral. Jesus said, you're either with me or you're against me. Fallen men are lost. They're not neutral. They're highly predisposed, predisposed. Predisposed, <laughs> predisposed. <laughs> Sounds like I've been just smoking too much weed. Uh, predisposed to hate God. So that's the limitation of logic. If you start with, uh, if you start with fallen presuppositions, you will build a relatively logic world that's completely unreality. Well, let's move on to the second kind, science. We most associate the name Francis Bacon with the scientific method. Now, the scientific method deals with this, that in the material world, we can have a hypothesis about the laws of science or about how something works in chemistry or biology or physics, right, or astronomy or so forth. One of the... Paradigm shifts that happened was, for instance, Isaac Newton. Before Isaac Newton, everyone knows about his discovering gravity and so forth. But one of the uh, major paradigm shifts is that most people thought that the that the laws of physics and only applied within the Earth's atmosphere, and that what you once you left the Earth's atmosphere, that that there must, that there would be completely different scientific laws out there. They didn't know what they were, but that's what they thought. And Isaac Newton said, no, the laws of physics go beyond the Earth's atmosphere, and gravity works in all the planets, and so forth, and so forth. And it was a huge paradigm shift. A paradigm is two 10 cent pieces. No, a paradigm is a, is a set of assumptions by an academic community about the nature of reality and how it works that is shared by all. Whether, and, and, uh, and it seems to answer certain questions, but eventually it, ans- it has more and more questions that it's not answering. And then along comes a Galileo and says, hey, the universe doesn't revolve around the earth. It's not a geocentric universe. It rev- the, the, or at least our solar system goes around the sun. It's heliocentric, and that's called a paradigm shift. So evolution and so forth has its paradigms, and one of the great paradigms today, because paradigms aren't neutral, just like fallen man isn't neutral, is that that we can study symptoms of diseases and create drugs to alleviate the symptoms, and what we need is more and more drugs, <laughs> right, but we don't want to understand the underlying complexities of the, how, how the the organisms were created in the first place, or, and you know, we don't want like proper nutrition or exercise or rest or whatever. We just because there's no money in that, we want more drugs. Believe me, science isn't all neutral ever. I just use that as an example, and I'm not to say saying that I'm not glad for drugs uh, of some kinds. But the scientific method deals with there's. Uh, a hypothesis about how chemistry or biology or physics or whatever works. And you can test that assumption or that hypothesis, isolating various variables that might affect the test. And if your hypothesis is right and the test is right and the right variables have been eliminated and so forth, that it will yield a result. And if, this, if the uh, scientific hypothesis is correct, the, it will be reliable to the point where that it's repeatable. So if some drug company studies 100 such patients, someone else might study a 1,000 such patients. And if you think it's neutral, just study something like aspartame, which is a um, diet su- uh, sweetener that makes billions of dollars. And I I believe it is in the billions, past millions, and all the studies that are funded by the aspartame people say it's good, and all the studies that are funded by other people say it's horrible. It's carcinogenic. It causes permanent brain damage, uh, and causes great weight gain, and, and it's addictive. The basic uh, formula for it is based on formaldehyde, which I can't think that anyone would want to drink. And if there wasn't billions of dollars behind it, I think it would be illegal. So don't give me science is neutral. (laughs) Because you can take a subject like that and it really gets down to who's paying for the study. Now, if science is true, and science—by the way—the scientific method has taken medicine leaps and forwards, and, and especially um, in the uh, infant mortality rate and so forth—and has been, and generally, is a great thing. But the limitation is, you got to examine examine the biases. You got to say, what are they selling? That's one limitation. You got to also examine, are the methodologies good or faulty? So science isn't just about questioning the results. It's about questioning the methodologies. Did we eliminate the right variables? Did we did we not figure that the, what temperature this is done at is important or something? Now, if you want to know uh, a little bit about the philosophy of science, there's a, a Guy who has passed away now, but uh, probably one of the most important books I ever read in 19, I don't know, '76 or something, uh, when I was a kid, um, is called "The Structure of Scientific Revolutions" by Thomas Kuhn. And it's all about what I was talking about with paradigm shifts. And he talks about how there's a prevailing paradigm, and then eventually there's more and more questions the paradigm can't answer. And then some young upstart starts yelling, the umper has no clothes. In other words, he questions the paradigm, and he's kicked out of the universities, and he's laughed at, he's a stupid creationist, what a jerk, what a stupid idiot, and so forth. But eventually, uh, if a paradigm shift happens, it's because people begin to see it solves more problems than the former paradigm, and it's more closely associated with reality. One of the reasons I always love the guys who take engineering and science and math and so forth is because, like, I, you know, had a bachelor's degree with honors in liberal studies and a master's degree in history. And and in that stuff, you can believe any old nonsense you want. It's all theoretical. If you can argue well and you can write well, you get A's, especially if you agree with the professor. Now, if you, I did experiments just because I was that ornery where I would purposely write a very crappy paper with a lot of spelling mistakes and grammar mistakes and logic mistakes and so forth, whereby I would agree with the professor's opinion and I'd always get an A. And then I'd write an excellent paper. That I had a, all sorts of experts proofread my grammar and my spelling and my logic and, and a, the fallacies thereof and, and research and document it much better, whereby I disagree with a professor and I'd always get a B. Plus. Because, you, you know, it's your story, my story, or his story. Because no matter what you talk about with sociology, philosophy, whatever, they're trying to sell you something. It's religious by nature, and it's never neutral, and there's no such thing as objectivity. There's God's subjective opinion and all the other subjective opinions, and it's not neutral. He who doesn't gather with me scatters, Jesus said. In science, that can happen because of money and other, and people don't want there to be a God and other false motivations. But in science, it eventually has to answer some real problems. Like, in you know, we can continue the welfare state, Even though it creates more poverty and we can keep running politicians to say, uh, vote for me and we'll steal more money from the productive people and we'll fund more money, you know, and so forth. And even though there's all kind of data proving that that the war on poverty is what's creating the poverty, no one's going to have to look at the reality thereof, nor will they. Because fallen man wants a statist world and they want what's called the politics of guilt and pity and they want more government control. And they will vote and fallen men say, we do not want Christ to be Lord Abbas, give us Barabbas. We want Caesar. Save us from ourselves by the government so we don't have to get involved. And so... No, no, matter how much reality it proves that that social welfare programs are what's actually creating the problem, which there's abundant evidence. There's so much evidence that's not even arguable. If you're even if you're willing to do his will, you'll know the truth. But but see that kind of st- the 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 so-called social sciences they used to call them sciences. Well, how laughable can you get the so the humanities? are just so subjective you can believe any nonsense you want. But at least in engineering and science, at the end of the day, the computer has to work. (laughs) Or you can't sell it. And even with drugs, you know, like if they actually do cure the cancer and so forth, believe me, they'll make more money. So at least science has that limitation on it. Now, the problem uh, with science, and, you know, so we know about improper motivations, faulty methodologies, and, and all these limitations on science. But the biggest, there's two bigger limitations on science that you need to know. I'm going to go over again tonight, Stephen. I, I don't care. Um, I hope you, you guys don't care. this. I hope you understand this is good stuff. You guys know this is good stuff. Um, so uh there, there's two other problems you need to know about with science. The first I would call scientism and uh, I have a friend at Wright State that I really love a lot and and uh, I don't know if he likes me but uh <laughs> but he was a Christian when he came to Wright State now he's a junior and he's a sup- super evolutionist and really on a crusade against Christianity and and full of how science is he's French kissing with science and I love science and I adore, we worship and adore. And he, you know, like has certain scientists that he got, you know, puts on Facebook that he got his picture taken with. And, and, uh, you know, and he's bought the whole thing, like some kind of drug or whatever. And, uh, he'll, um, and I'll always tell, say, I think you're confusing science with scientism. And he'll go, no, I'm not. And, uh, He'll even go to uh, this apologetics group on Wright State campus where nobody knows much about what they're talking about, but he won't talk to me. <laughs> uh, you know, And I'm not saying I know a lot about what I'm talking about. I'm just a novice in these things. and I'm uh, just trying to learn. But nevertheless, um, one of the limitations about science is this. Science deals with hypotheses that you can create tests for that can be repeatedly verified here and now. So science has nothing to do with origins. Now, maybe you think I'm an old guy, but I wasn't around then. Maybe you think my pastor Ray Nethery is an old guy, but he was only born about the start of the Great Depression he wasn't there when the earth's crust was cooling and the dinosaurs roamed and so forth. Oh, no, there's a demonic cat out there. Shoot him. No, uh, take that off the tape. <laughs> People are cat lovers. I'm not a bunch of a cat lover, especially feral cats. There's feral cats worldwide. That's actually an interesting problem. There's, but they keep the mice down. Thank you for the killing the mice. Go get a mouse, will you? Kill a rat, would you? But don't make it my Uncle Louie. But uh, so, uh, you know, science deals with that which you can verify and repeat now. It cannot say anything about origins. Now, we'll talk a little bit when we get to historical legal proof. History and legal proof can say some things about origins. But science, it's not a scientific question. It's a faith question. And if you really understand the philosophy of science, when you start dealing with the evolutionists and their thinking and the new atheism and Richard Dawkins, all this, it's, they're making leaps of faith. They're assuming facts not in evidence. And they're building an entire world upon presuppositions that they want to believe. And they're unwilling to admit that. I remember talking to a, a guy who'd won the national award for study in human sexuality. And there's a tree planted in his name at a certain university in a plaque. I don't want to say much about who he is, uh, but, uh, and we sat up all night when he was teaching at Rutgers university and we drank some beer till around four in the morning and talked about this kind of stuff. And then finally he goes, wow, I get it. I get what you're saying about epistemology. If, if what I'm, if my assumptions are wrong, then all of my studies and all of my data and all of it is incorrect, and I'm living in a in a fantasy universe. I get what you're saying. I see it. You're right. Finally, it took about six hours to get him there, but I just don't choose to live my life on that level. And he continued to be an atheist till the day he died, uh, teaching that Christianity is the source of the world's evil. At, at Uh, a couple of different universities that he was a teacher at. Because he didn't want there to be a God. So, scientism is the faith. Scientism is basically saying, um, because all the scientists are saying this, it must be true. It's the emperor has new clothes syndrome. So, because, like, the latest fad is global warning. I can remember when I took a class on political science 315, and I won't say the name of the professor because his daughter became a Christian in our group, and you actually know her. You didn't know you know her, but... Um, uh, and I took his class when he was a professor at Bowling Green State University, and he made us, it was supposed to be on the presidency or something, but we all had to read this book called The End of Influence, and it was about how the world is running out of gasoline and natural resources and and so forth, and it's all coming to an end, and real soon now it's going to all crash, and we're going to be poor forever, and there will be this global depression that's going to go on and on because there were, It's the sky is falling, ah! You know, any, any, it's a twister and all this kind of stuff. And uh, and he basically believed that a new ice age was coming. And if you didn't believe there was a new ice age coming in the 70s, because all the scientists believed it, then you must be an idiot. Now, if you go back and study it, all the scientists, not all, but a, a so many scientists believed that there was a new ice age coming in the 70s, that if you didn't believe that, you were considered a stupid. You might as well, like I just would stand up in class go blah go, yeah, I believe the world was created in six days by the word of God out of nothing. Just I wanted to tell you that I'm stupid. <laughs> I love you, and I'm stupid. <laughs> and, uh, because, you know, because it's an assumption that assumes lots of facts nine, and evidence and makes irrational leaps. And because fallen man is so blind, they want that. And that's called scientism. It's a f- irrational faith in science that basically assigns to science things that the scientific method cannot possibly address. And when you make that leap, when you actually think that science has something to do with whether evolution or creation is true or not, then you you have fallen into an irrational religion called scientism. And just because... You know, the Supreme Court said that blacks were three fifths of a person in the Dred Scott decision of 1850. Didn't make it true. Do you know that there was a interesting decade in the Middle Ages that was very similar to today, where the whole Earth warmed up for ten or twelve years in? And uh, nobody has a real explanation as to why, but there was global warming. Now, I would go so far as this. I would say to increase our carbon input, uh, there's enough evidence to believe that can't be good. And to destroy the ozone can't be good. Now, whether that's causing global warming or whatever it's causing, it's causing pollution. And therefore, I think that we should uh, quit allowing the oil companies to run our government and own our government and own our politician and quit suppressing the knowledge of solar power because we should have had solar-powered cars uh, four, four decades ago. And if it was all neutral, we would have had that. But the government doesn't want that because they can't tax solar power. And the gasoline companies don't want that because they can't sell it. And the Arabs don't want that and the Muslims don't want that because they can't continue uh, jihad and terrorism and so forth if they aren't funded through the oil. And when, when there's solar panels on everybody's garages, and when they do a similar thing to what they did at the rise of the... Ra- when the railroad industry was first starting, there was all these competing sizes of railroad tracks and so forth, and the government stepped in and did one thing, which the Constitution actually allows for this, and so many things the government does, the Constitution doesn't allow for, but they passed a law that railroad tracks had to be uniform, so if this company and that company built railroad tracks and they came together, they would actually fit, <laughs> and that's happened a little bit with like mac platforms and and i you know windows platforms but not completely but all they have to do is pass a law that the 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 batteries have to be interchangeable and everyone would have a rack of batteries in their garage that are being empowered by solar and there would be battery stations that spring up and take about one or two years to sweep the nation. And when you're driving, if you go more, if you can fit three or four batteries, so you can go about 900 or 1200 miles in your car before you run out of power. And if you did run out of power, you would you would do just like people do with their propane tanks. You can go get them refilled at U-Haul if you want, or you can go to all kind of drugstores and hardware stores and exchange one empty propane tank for a full propane tank. So you could pull into the battery station instead of the gas station and give them your three empty batteries for three full batteries and pay a lot less than a tank of gas. Uh, because they would have the old batteries, and they would recharge them, and, they, and they, that business would be highly profitable. Uh, and I'm sure the government would find some way to tax it, uh, at least the battery sales and uh, that part of it. Um, I don't know how they could tax the sun or whatever, or put a meter on your roof or the sun or whatever, but uh, and all that, the, the technology has existed for that for decades. So don't give me that science is neutral and that'll wipe out the the spread of Islam just as much as when Prince Henry, the navigator and the Portuguese built ships that Francis Magellan took around uh, to went to the West and went around the South American tip. And, and uh, what is it? What was it? Uh, I guess Prince Henry, the navigator around the Cape of good horn and, and they, Open up trade routes by ships to the Far East to get the spices, and they no longer had to go through the Ottoman Turk lands and pay high exorbitant taxes. And it, the Ottoman Turkish Empire was broken financially. It took four centuries before it completely crumbled, but crumble it did because it had lost its source of revenue. Now, that's a whole other subject. I don't know if I should have gone into any of that, but it, that's an example of the limitations of science. It's not neutral. If we really cared about the science, let's get solar panels. (laughs) I don't think they'll pollute as much. All right, let's move on. Historical or legal proof? Now, if you get a master's degree in history, I don't know why you don't study this in junior high, but um, our public school, what the heck, um, you eventually study, call... uh, Historical methodologies. And when you're studying history, it's not a crapshoot as much as I joked about earlier because at least you have to tie it to the facts. Now, uh, legal proof, there's a whole, legal proof is based on the idea that there's an adversarial system. Proverbs says uh, the first to plead his case seems just till another cross-examines him, and so it's based on the the concept of getting to the truth by 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 historical evidence and cross-examining that evidence. Now, the first actual historians were the Hebrews in a in a book called, that we now call the Old Testament, that should probably be called the Hebrew Scriptures. Pretty sure the Jewish people would call it the Hebrew scriptures, not the Old Testament uh, and uh because of course the what we call the Old Testament didn't actually start till Exodus nineteen so the Hebrew scriptures, but the Hebrews were the first real historians, and they all all ancient cultures mesopotamia egypt they had. What was called mythopoeic no cosmogenic literature? Let's just break that down. It's not so hard as you might think. Mythopoeic no myth means it doesn't have to be true; it's fiction. Okay, peak is uh, like polemical. Uh, it, you're you're selling an explanation for who or what is ultimately real, or answering the big questions: Why are we here? How did it all begin? And so, every culture of the world has always had some explanation of where it all began. By the way, uh, some of this comes uh, goes back. If you want to study this a little bit, read a book called "Before Philosophy" by F- Henry Frankfurt, and I forget his wife's name, Frankfurt and Frankfurt. And I apologize to his wife if she's still living. Um, so, um, but before uh, before philosophy, there was mythopoeic literature. Before the Greeks and the exaltation of reason. And mythopoeic literature basically was a fictional account of the origins of the cosmos. Cosmic genus, cosmogenic literature, cosmos is the word for universe or in, in Greek, and, and chaos is the word for disorder. And genos, genesis, is the word for birth. So mythopoeic cosmogenic literature is, is that every culture has a story of how it began. In the in Egyptian cosmogenic literature there was this great uh this great ocean because water has no form or void. If you've ever been on a on the sea in a storm, uh you've you you're right to be pretty scared. <laughs> uh and so uh cos, you know water is a universal symbol for chaos. And out of the chaos came this primordial silt, and the silt kept growing into an island and so forth, and the island formed, began to form the lands. In the beginning, and out of disorder came order. And then out of the order spontaneously generated was a cow. And all life came from this mother cow. Now today, because, uh, because of the Hebrews, and because of the Christians and because of the Greek re- philosophers and their reason, they, those two, again, the, the materialist worldview and the, uh, and the theistic worldview smashed those cosmogenic mythopoeic explanations that tended to be pantheistic or polytheistic, and they became laughable. But believe me every ancient culture was evolutionary in the same big questions of evolution that or that material always existed that order came from disorder that there's some upward principle that's causing disorder to become more ordered and that life was spontaneously generated and that there's some upward principle of life it's just that the the Greek philosophers and the, and the Hebrew historians smashed that thinking until Darwin came along and said, no, it wasn't a cow. It was a simple single-celled organism. And out of that came the upward principle that all life came. And that seemed so much more scientific Now, we know because of DNA today that, that, that a single simple cell has millions of pieces of information that have to come together at once, 20-some proteins, all kind of chromosomes, et cetera, et cetera, and most importantly, life has to come out of non-life. <laughs> so there must be an a eternal, existent living one. now, if you go to the the anti Christian secular humanistic universities, you will hear that the Greeks were the first historians, and they will say, "Gee, uh, the Hebrews actually had mythopoeic literature." There's actually similarities between Genesis and the Babylonians' writings and the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians, and that misses the point altogether, because the the similarities in Genesis are there on purpose because they're Slapping those cosmogenic thinkings in the face, they're saying, in the beginning, God, this is the history. And to to not understand that the actual facts of the history were of ultimate importance to the Hebrews is to misunderstand the whole thing. That's to know nothing about the Hebrew faith or the Judeo-Christian faith. Because the whole postulate of an uh, axiom assumed in Hebrew Judeo thinking is there is a God who is transcendent, who's immutable, who's omniscient, who's omnipotent, who's omnipresent, who said, Let there be life. And there was. Let there be light. Let there be this, that, and the other. And therefore, to a Christian, our God is the creator of history, the sustainer of history. And the historical factuality of it is absolute importance, or we got nothing. It's amazing how many so-called Christians, especially in what's called uh, mainstream Protestantism and, and mainstream Catholicism today, uh, have basically all this modern humanistic nonsense that they that they believe that it's just mythopoeic and so forth. Because if that's true, then our faith is worthless. As Paul says, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then go eat, drink, and be merry. If he's not the second Adam, if there's not a first Adam, then it's all a sham. Let's forget it. So now, most people will say the Greeks are the inventors. If you're, you know, the humanists will say the Greeks are the inventors of history and then the Romans and they'll point back to the Iliad, the Odyssey, and so forth. And you need to know two names about history from the Greek perspective. Of course, in the Bible, you need to know Moses and so forth. And uh, from the Greek perspective, there's a guy named Herodotus or Herodotus. And Herodotus, uh, is called the father of history. And uh, I always forget, uh, I'm forgetting now if he wrote the Peloponnesian Wars or the Persian Wars. Uh, But uh, he basically interviewed all these people from all around the Aegean Sea and uh, gave their accounts to give the history of, I guess it would be the Peloponnesian, or no, the, the Persian Wars, whichever one it is. Anybody got a smartphone on them? Uh, look up Herodotus, H-E-R-O-D-U-T-S. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting this. I'm getting old, that's my excuse. <laughs> uh, I don't know what your excuse is. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm old and decrepit. I, I have a slight case of old timers disease. So um so Herodotus is called by called the father of history or the father of modern history because of his it his um, um interviewing eyewitnesses, what does it say about what he his, the book he wrote? Just, yeah. Can you Google it just a little bit? Uh the father of history first conferred by cicero the first historian known to collect materials systematically and historical narratives the histories his masterpiece i guess of the greco-persian wars okay of the uh, yeah so you know he's the, the greco-persian wars or the persian wars he's the he's the writer of those thank you so now um the criticism that came against Herodotus eventually is that he just accept people's witness without cross-examining or doubting their witness or sub- subjecting it to any systems of verification. So along came another historian named Thucydides who wrote the Peloponnesian Wars. And uh, Thucydides uh, is called the father of scientific history. And that's that scientism. He should be called the father of critical history, or the father of I doubt it history. <laughs> you know, in other words, he basically began to, to 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 apply what we do in legal and historical proof, like is the witness biased? And we remember we're talking about the limitations of all these systems in history or in legal proof. Is the witness lying? Or did they missee some things? So you know, the it, when you have a legal case, you you uh, you have somebody the prosecution puts on witnesses, and the defense tries to impeach the witness, either their character or their judgment or so forth. If you ever saw the funny, fun and funny movie called My Cousin Vinny, you know this lady sees such and such, and then he proves that she can't see, and you know, no matter, uh, and basically. Uh, the same guy that plays Karate Kid, Danny, uh, uh, or what's his life? Ralph Maraccino or something. Or, he's, he was an actor. But he goes, we, we need my cousin Vinny because when anyone was, you know, like a magician or whatever, he would say he's palming it. And so because what you basically do is impeach the witness. So the limit, what Thucydides did is he said, wait, we can't just take every witness's eyewitness account. We need to find out if they're motivated by profit or if they actually didn't see what they said or are they lying. That The Bible actually took this into account long before Thucydides because it says that uh, by every fact shall be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And in the Hebrew legal system, long before the Greeks, you couldn't have a capital crime on the basis of one witness. You know, one of the things that has come about in our own legal system because of DNA uh, is lots and lots of verdicts have been overturned because we're finding out that witnesses are highly motivated to think they saw the person, and there's a way that the uh, the police and so forth can can kind of uh, can kind of influence the witness to want to say that's the right person. And you have to remember that a prosecutor uh, makes his job or makes his living or gets reelected because he won the convictions and made the streets safer by getting the bad guys off. But And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm saying the limitation of the legal proof is how reliable are the witnesses? Now, just so you understand, the witnesses in historical proof or legal proof can also be other kinds of evidence, like artifacts. Like the reason they do archaeological digs is the witness of pottery and and clay tablets that they then decipher what they said or whatever. That's how they, you know, Hammurabi's Code or what have you. And if you don't think that's important, realize that, for instance, the modern humanistic... Uh, that existed in academia said the Iliad and the Odyssey are completely myth. They're not historic history. Until a famous archaeologist uh, decided to use the Iliad and the Odyssey to find Troy and found it right where it was supposed to be. And uh, in, you know, uh, One of my favorite books is a book called The Kingdom of God, written in 1953 by a guy named John Bright. And he was a student of William Foxwell Albright, a famous archaeologist. In the climate of, because of higher criticism in Darwinism, it was assumed in academia, assumed, Because the academia loves to assume facts not in evidence, because if it's those, because fallen men are not neutral, and they wanted to say the Bible is full of myths and it's not accurate history, and people were quick to jump on that bandwagon because they're not neutral. And along came this guy named William Foxwell Albright, and he began to use the biblical records to find the cities that the Old Testament describes. And now we haven't found Abraham's body, but we know that the world of Abraham existed just like the Bible describes it. And we know where Jericho was and so forth. And many, many, many of the cities of the Old Testament have been, have been uh, archaeologically discovered and, and, and excavated. And the climate of opinion that it's all BS is uh, uh, itself become BS. You know what? They found a city that is Babylon. They found where the Tower of Babel was. And they found in the wreckage of thereof, they found a working battery. If you remember, God said that because they of all of one language and because they were defying the biblical man and day to spread out and be fruitful and multiply and subdue the whole earth, and they were building one civilization against God, they were building, that. that's the whole point of the tower. It's a type of mountain of, uh, it's man-made mountain. You know, if you go back and if you want to know more about this, uh, listen to my Sunday podcast about mountains in the Bible. And, uh, you know the lord basically said nothing shall be impossible to them and science was set back thousands of years because god confused their languages and spread the people out to to civilizations all over the planet but in modern times when the battery was reinvented guess what 70 years later there was a nuclear bomb it was dropped in Japan at the end of World War II, two of them, of course, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So assuming that uh, Babylon had not been, uh, that, that the historical account of Babylon in Genesis 11 is not true, or assuming it is true, uh, it would have probably been less than a century uh, till there was atomic power. And you know what? God, in his wisdom, wasn't ready for the earth to have atomic power. There was more to be done. Now, if you're an atheist, you'd hate what I'm talking about. Of course, you'd hate everything I've been talking about. But uh, you hate reality. Um, But we still love you. So, artifacts, forensics, DNA, all of these are types of witnesses. Witnesses and part of the historical legal proof. The limitation is, is of course, cross-examination for the reliability of the witness. Is he lying, or she lying, or did they not really see what they thought they saw? Is there insufficient evidence? You know, the whole legal system is based to be that there's no... Uh, that, it, that a person's supposed to not be able to be convicted, especially of serious crimes, if there's any reasonable doubt. Are the methodologies now? Um, all four worldviews use reason, science, and historical legal proof. Both materialist and theist completely rely on logic and reason. If you know anything about Thomas Aquinas and the scholasticism and so forth, and if you know anything about the ancient church fathers, uh, the the ancient church fathers basically believed that Plato had gone about as far as you could go towards truth and still completely missed it altogether (laughs) because he didn't no god and the doctrine of the bible is that the heavens are telling the glory of god and there is a general revelation in all of nature that points to god but that you cannot see it without the specific intervention of the grace of god in your life to turn you to be willing to see the truth this is why I'm not in the least bit intimidated by the lost or the atheist or whatever. I pity the fools in the Mr T sense in but with compassion, not in some like I pity the fool like Mr. T because that you know he's trying to sell something. But uh, we we pity them. We have compassion on them. They are blind, lost, dead, and and seeking to run from reality. And we are offering them that the evidence is there. Turn and receive the gospel. Now, one more thing. um, Science, with the limitation of scientism as a tenant as a whole, Its validity seems to be distorted and exaggerated by materialist worldview. But both Christian, Judeo-Christian, and and um, materialist would uh, would agree that science has validity. I forgot to mention one other uh, problem with science. Science also is based on a concept called uniformitarianism. In uniformitarianism is the assumption that all the laws of physics, biology, chemistry, etc. that are working today have always been working. But see, science can't say that. Science assumes there can't be miracles and in interventions in science. But that's an atheistic assumption that assumes facts, not in evidence. And we don't know if perhaps before the flood of Noah, if there were other scientific rules or processes. We don't know if God changed them at any point in time. They're his laws. And of course, a materialist who assumes there is no God could never accept that. So... Keep turning up the heat one degree at a time because I'm chilly. Uh, so that's important. Uniformitarianism is the idea that's talked about in uh, one of Peter's epistles that that when they uh, when they mock you know that saying that all processes exist as uh, as they always have, um, then they're you know they're basically assuming facts not in evidence. Uniformitarianism is discussed by uh, Peter in, in First or Second Peter. You can look look at it, look for it. Now, uh, so that's historical, legal proof, science, reason. Now, in both, all three of those are accepted by materialists and theists. We would we would say that as a Christian, you would say that man's reason is limited by his faulty assumptions, by being lost, and he's, he's highly motivated to do so. He's not neutral. We would also say that the same kind of thing exists in science, and there's improper motivations. And frankly, it's the same thing also in, in, in uh, humanist views of history. They're highly motivated to, to what we would call revisionist history to rewrite the history books to sell their worldview. That's why the Enlightenment is called the Enlightenment. From a biblical point of view, it was a great leap into darkness. So that's really uh, the Enlightenment uh, was not an enlightening at all. It was man running from the light uh, and, and rewriting history. That's why I say, uh, I tell people all this uh, all the time, even though I was a Christian uh, from my freshman year in college and began to study biblical studies and worldviews and so forth, I had a master's degree in history before I began to actually know anything about history because I didn't really, until after my master's degree, start to read original documents and develop the critical resources to be able to question the historical revisionist views of American history, especially and other uh, aspects of history that have and really realize what the true history was. because history's never neut- neutral. Now, on one more thing on historical legal proof, that brings into a thing called evidential apologetics. And that is, are there evidences for the Christian faith? For instance, um, you know, there are great evidences that the world described uh, in the first 12 chapters of Genesis actually existed as it was. But nobody's found Abraham's actual body. When it comes to the resurrection of Christ, some of the things that you need to know, I would encourage you to read a couple books on that subject. Uh, of, any, of any area of evidential apologetics, that's the most important one, as Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 15, if if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we are of all men most to be pitied. So um, now, you need to keep in mind that in Luke, Jesus says, uh, when he's telling the par- parable of Abraham and Lazarus, he, uh, in Lazarus, uh, Abraham uh, says, Go and send someone to my brothers to warn them not to come here. Jesus said, if they they have Moses and the prophets, if they will not listen to them, neither will they listen if someone rises from the dead. Now because man is so highly motivated to deny God and run from God and so forth that it doesn't matter how much evidence for the resurrection you present, Unless God grants them conviction of sin, confession of sin, and repentance, and a willingness to receive the truth and want the truth, which is the work of God. We can only present it. And, but, like in Acts, it says, So therefore all those pointed to eternal life believed. If we proclaim the truth, the word of God will do the work it was sent to do. Right? so now um with the resurrection i just want to throw out a few of the main facts that you can read about in like josh mcdowell's uh, more than a carpenter or the strobel's the case uh for christianity or the case for easter or any of that so um look that up later will you because it's actually a little distracting um if if um just write down the question and ask me later because it's that's okay. Uh, it's just a little distracting. So, um, with the resurrection, here's what I uh, want to say: some things. Um, if you want to read this, there's there was a good start for this. Would be F. F. Bruce F. Period F. Period B. R. U. S. B. R. U. Um, C. E. He's got a book called "The New Testament Documents: Are They Reliable?" So one of the things you have to know with the resurrection is there is considerable evidence that's incredibly or that's awesomely overwhelming that the New Testament documents are the most reliable documents of any ancient documents. We now know that the Iliad and the Odyssey are telling some actual facts about history, how accurate they are and so forth. We can't go back and prove it. but it's interesting that everyone believes that the Iliad and the Odyssey that you read in high school, or that you used to before public school <laughs> destroyed everything. But uh, oops, sorry, my bias. But um, the people used to read the Iliad and the Odyssey as like a normal thing in high school. Uh, everyone had to. And back in those days when we had education, um, nobody doubted that the Iliad and the Odyssey that you're reading is essentially an accurate translation of what Homer, uh, he was called the blind bard, and he was the writer of the Iliad and the Odyssey. In in a lot of ways, he was probably the first Greek historian. Uh, He should get more credit than he does. But uh, nobody doubts that what we have is essentially, essentially accurate. However, he wrote in the 8th century B.C., and the earliest existing manuscript we have of the copies of copies of copies, you know, the original thing they wrote is called the autographs, right? You should know that about the, if you're going to discuss New Testament realities with people. The original document that Paul wrote or Mark wrote or whatever would be called the autograph. None of those exist for any ancient documents. So what we have is copies of copies of copies. Without copy machines and without electronic copies, but because people took meticulous time to write uh, hand copies, we have relatively accurate copies. And the earliest one we have for the Iliad and the Odyssey is in the 8th century AD, 1600 years later. Yet nobody doubts its reliability. But when it comes to the New Testament, we actually have fragments of copies that exist from the first century. And the New Testament writers actually, like when it comes to Simon Cyrene uh, being made to carry Jesus' cross, they mention Alexander and Rufus, his two sons, because Alexander and Rufus were still around to ask him when it was written. And that's why Paul mentions 500 brethren who saw Jesus risen from the dead. So, number one, you know, we have literally tens of thousands of manuscripts that date back to the first, second, and third century. If people read Euripides' plays, Aristophanes' plays, they read Plato's. Nobody doubts that the Republic was written by Plato. But we have more than 100 times more evidence for every book of the New Testament than any other ancient document. So when people say the New Testament's a bunch of crap, that's a bunch of crap. They don't know what they're talking about. The New Testament was circulated widely in the Roman Empire when there were plenty of people alive still to refute it. And over 500 people claimed they saw Jesus written, risen from the dead. Most, Almost all of them were put on trial for that because... In the Roman Empire, uh, Caesar was called Lord. He was called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when you were greeted on the street by Caesar as Lord, you had to return the greeting, yes, Caesar is Lord. The Christians refused to do that and were arrested in mass. Now, when you read the New Testament, most of the persecution you read about of the Christians in the New Testament was from the Judaizers or the Jewish uh, people persecuting the church and following them from city to city. Until sixty four AD, when the last books of the New Testament were being written, most of the books of the New Testament were were written by sixty seven AD. All of them were. and but several of them were written in the sixties AD, like First and Second Timothy, etc. And um, during that time period, the the persecution began to to switch over to Nero and the actual official government of Rome instead of the Judaizers. Both Paul and Peter perished in that first persecution, as did almost all the 500 people who claimed they saw Jesus. Now, it's just quite obvious to human nature, so when you you deal with legal proof, you have to question the reliability of the witnesses. Right? Right? So at the point, you know, if Bob Timer tells me that, um, you know, somebody won the Super Bowl or whatever, and he's got some reason he's lying, you know, or whatever, um, at the point where he's put on trial for his life, he'll say, uh, sorry, just kidding, <laughs> right? The fact that none of them back down is high evidence beyond a shadow of a doubt that it actually happened. None of them recanted their position. Even Galileo was talked into recanting his position by his daughter because she convinced him that his ideas were out there already and there was no turning them back, so why should he go ahead and die for him? So he, he said, I'm sorry, I was just kidding, and 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 he got to live uh, under house arrest on his estate for the rest of his life instead of being executed by the Inquisition. So the Romans uh, executed everyone who was still saying no. Caesar's not Lord. Jesus is Lord, and the resurrection attests to that. And not only the 500 witnesses, but thousands of others based on their witness died for their for their belief. In both the witness, John 15, 26, and 27, you shall bear witness of me. Jesus is predicting this to his followers after the resurrection that they would bear witness and the Holy Spirit will bear witness. And Christianity is always based on the fact that the Bible says for every fact shall be two or three witnesses. And we have the witness of history and we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. And anyone who's willing to examine the evidence, will be convinced by it. Men are highly motivated not to bow before the realities of the evidence. Now, that's how you do evangelism. Not like, would you please, I'll feel better about my faith if somebody, but you know. You know, we're here because we have been visited by God and liberated by God and and so forth, and we were freely given, so we're freely giving to you. But what we have to give you is life itself, reality, truth. Uh, you know, the, the current climate opinion where most Christians are somewhat intimidated their faith It's been brought on by the anti-intellectualism of the whole evangelical fundamentalist world, but it doesn't need to exist, and it didn't exist in the church throughout most of the centuries. We're right, they're wrong. We're found, they're lost. We're alive, they're dead. We see, they're blind, and we need to go and liberate them. We have the keys of the kingdom, and we need to unlock their doors. Now, finally, uh, now w- one more thing on the historicity and so forth. Re- read more stuff on it. I'm just t- glossing on the, some issues. Another very um, reliable attestation to the factuality of the resurrection is this. The Gospels record that women went to the gravesite first and that women saw Jesus first. There can be only one reasonable explanation for why the gospel said that is because it actually happened that way. Because in the Hebrew worldview thinking and the Roman worldview thinking, Women were not considered valid witnesses. That culture hadn't had Christianity and its equality doctrine start to liberate slaves and women. And, you know, over 2,000 years, Christianity has brought up more and more and more the status of everyone. But, uh, women were considered property, they were slaves to their husbands, they, had, they were not in, in Paul's doctrine that there's neither male nor female, you're all one in Christ, and Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, all this was a radical new view of women's liberation. And the fact that Jesus chose to appear to women first can only and the disciples decided to record that in the Gospels can only be explained by the fact that that's how it happened. If they knew they were lying, if there was some motivation for fame or fortune or any other reason or control over people or something like this, power, uh, they would not have recorded it that way. They would have clearly said, you know, Peter saw them first and the apostles and the guys saw them first. Because women's testimony wasn't valid in a court of law. They weren't allowed to be legal witnesses. Now, there were times where they made exceptions where two women's testimony would be considered equal to one woman's testimony, or one man's testimony. I'm sorry, I misspoke. So, so there can be no reasonable explanation for why the gospels record recorded that way in uh, other than that's the way it happened. So, and if you would care to study it out, there are more and more and more such legal and historical proofs uh, for the reliability. Then, you know, uh, one of the things that happened with the modern higher criticism and evolutionary thinking that swept the Protestant church after the Civil War called the li- called liberalism or uh, modernism and, the, and, and it captured the entire mainstream Protestantism, and the fundamentalism was a reaction against that, and they had their own new modern ideas instead of going back to the ancient uh, biblical ideas of the and arguing that way. So both became modernist movements, but one, one of the um, saddest realities about it is that they actually became so blind as to say, well, it's not important whether Jesus really rose from the dead or not, just that the disciples thought he did, and so they will actually say it's not important whether there is a literal resurrection. It's important that resurrection of faith occurred to the disciples, and like I'm like, are you taking acid or what? Are, you know, are you on drugs? <laughs> you know, my cousin Vinny. I love where the judge goes. Are you on drugs? (laughs) Because Paul argues that that's ridiculous. That there is no way that a hallucination or an illusion or any other nonsense accounts for the radical uh, propagation of the faith and the, the character and the integrity of the church that actually rescued the falling, crumbling Roman Empire from its own internal decay. Over five centuries, the church kept covenant community and all the things we're trying to restore, and in so doing, they turned the first postmodern anti-Christian pagan culture around and rescued it from itself. And this will happen again if we restore biblical Christianity all the way instead of doing a half-assed, shoddy job about it. And that's my passion. So, moving on to the last thing. Historical, uh, or moving on to revelation or spiritual enlightenment. Now, if you're a materialist, you reject this type of epistemology altogether. But what a Christian is saying is that we have a spirit, soul, and body. You heard me teach uh, two Sundays ago on the tripartite nature of man. And that that spirit is dead. But that spirit was made to commune with God. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And when people hear the word of God anointed by the spirit of God, God has those who he moves on and grants them faith to know it's true. It's as simple as that. We are not agnostics. We, a Christian believes that we know, that we know, that we know. As Paul said, I know him whom I have believed. Whoever has believed his report, Jesus said, has set a seal to this, that God is true. If you're willing to do my will, Jesus said, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Um, What Christians know is this. We know that we know the things that are revealed by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures are true, not because... We can, we can shore up our faith with evidential apologetics and with, with seeing how, how many manuscripts there are, with, which we touched on, and many other arguments, but we know ultimately because of the witness of the Holy Spirit and because he's called the Spirit of truth and he witnesses in such a way that he convinces you that you know that you're talking to someone who's omniscient, who's omnipresent, who's incapable of lying, who has total purity, has no false motivations, and who is something completely different than anyone we ever met or ever were or ever hoped to be. He is God himself in perfection and holiness. And we bow before his witness. And that's what it means to become a Christian. And uh, ultimately, a materialist cannot accept that. That's why Thomas Jefferson had what was called the Jefferson Bible. He he said, "I like the moral teachings of Jesus, but I just can't accept all this resurrection and healings and casting out demon stuff." So he said, "I'm going to take all the supernatural parts out of the New Testament." And he wrote this really little book. Uh, well, he didn't write it, but he, he just he put together just the the scriptures that get rid of the supernatural. And he had a little bit left, and it's called the Jefferson Bible. You, I, I have one. You can get one. <laughs> and that's what, modern, that's what the Sadducees believed about the Old Testament. That's what the modernist Protestantism movement mean, believes. Uh, there are even unbelievers who believe Jesus was a pretty good moral teacher. The problem is, is he didn't give us that option. He was crucified for claiming to be God. And someone who claims to be God is either insane or they're lying or they are God. You can't have it any other way logically. And Jesus and his followers were too consistent. They picked up the entire pieces of the Roman Empire. They rescued a crumbling civilization from itself and that's our mission today we have to become we have to do whatever it takes to restore the fullness of christianity and build the kind of covenant communities that are what they had in the first 5 centuries and nothing less or what we have will continue to be laughable as it is today and of no no power and no power to deliver heal save whatever it's not just about miracles Because Jesus did miracles in cities that rejected his miracles. And he said, woe are you, this city and that city, because if the miracles had been done in you that were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. But it's about a body of Christ that lives so Christ-like that they have to either say, "God," because of the witness of the way these Christians live, God is among you or they got to kill us. And we, we must create the kinds of Christian communities that there's no other ground. Either they're going to kill us or they're going to fall down and worship him because of how we live together under his lordship. And when we go to lots of places, including America, I think that we're probably a generation or two still away from actually killing Christians in America, but I think it'll happen uh, in our in, in the you know, the present trajectory of paganism. I think that uh, there will be times when we witness among Muslims or Hindus or wherever that, you know, there have been more martyrs for Christ in the 20th century, and that's with a mishmashed, watered-down Christianity. The more we build real communities of faith that really have the full goods and the full revelation and so forth, They're either going to have to, they had to crucify Jesus because they couldn't stand him around anymore. And that's why they they had to crucify the the early church. But back to spiritual revelation, spiritual revelation. uh, As a Christian, you're saying that I had a dead spirit. God quickened my spirit through the words of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit in such a way that I know that I know that I know that he is true. And his word is forever. Isaiah eight twenty, if they do not to the law and to the to the testimonies, if they don't speak that as the history books, and to, in other words, to the covenant law and to the into Genesis through Esther, if they don't speak according to these things, it's because they have no dawn. They they're they're in total darkness, they're blind, they're lost. So that is spiritual revelation. That is based on the truth of God. Now, one last thing about spiritual revelation. I appreciate your patience for tonight because this is a good lecture. And uh, uh, this is what you should have gotten in eighth grade and um, maybe ninth grade. And, and, uh, you know, our founding fathers, by the way, studied this kind of stuff when they were five and six and eight years old. Well, eight, eight, eight to 12. So... Uh, you know, this is not that advanced. Uh, it's just that we have become a kind of a wandering in the dark, anti intellectual, befuddled, can't read very much and can't think very straight because no one taught us how to think kind of culture. Uh, one last thing about spiritual revelation is this what Christians know is very important. We know that we know accurately. but we never know exhaustively. Now that's really an important distinction, and that's the answer to the agnostics. The agnostics say, because you cannot know exhaustively, there may come new facts that over that change the entire paradigm and way of looking at reality. So how could you never know anything? And they make a leap of faith to say, therefore, we know that you could never know. And we are not taking that leap of faith. He is revealing himself to us, and we are con- not taking a leap at all. We are convinced by him because of the awesomeness of who he is and because he is so worshipful. We know that what we know from Scripture, it, the, the living word of Christ, is true. And we don't just hope we're right. And we don't deserve to be right. That's an important part of Christianity. We deserve to be running from the truth, blind, deaf, dumb, stupid, and pursuing that. We deserve to have a PhD in blind, deaf, dumb, and stupid, and uh, writing books about it and and seeking it. As we all were until Christ intervened in our lives. and he's offering that to you and what when he reveals himself what he reveals is absolutely true infallible knowledge but it's never we know it that we know accurately what he's revealed but we never know it completely as paul says in 1 corinthians 12 we know in part we prophesy in part but when we go to be with him, we'll know fully as we've been fully known. First John 3 says that we don't know, beloved, what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Whoever has this hope purifies himself. So all Christians are on a on a journey out of darkness into light, out of improper motivations into proper motivations out of death into life, out of falseness into reality. But what we know about the truth of the the gospel, what has been revealed, what we recite in the Nicene Creed and the symbol of Chalcedon and the Athanasian Creed and the Apostles Creed, what we know in the scriptures, we know that we know that we know them. That's uh, you've uh, some of you or all of you are theology students in our systematic theology class and you've studied the doctrine called the clarity of Scripture. by the Holy Spirit, you're clear. If you're willing to receive him, but as many as received him, he came to his own people and his own people rejected him. The world is running from Christ, the world is wants to kill Christ. the world hates Christ, but to the whoever receives him, To them, he gives the exousia, the power and the authority to become children of God. And a child knows his father, and my sheep know my voice, and we know that he who promised is faithful, and that in him all the promises of God are yes and amen, although we never know them exhaustively. Amen.